it's really good to be with you and uh, just be able to share with you this morning. And I just want you to uh, just to be open to what uh, God might say to you this morning. And hopefully he is going to speak to you in some way. Uh, if your heart is open, I believe that he will. I want to just start off, though, by thanking everyone for your kind words and thoughts um, over this weekend. Um, my younger brother passed away on Friday very suddenly. <laughs> I've kept this in. And this, I'd rather be here than anywhere else amongst the community of God. He was 52. He had a sudden heart attack on Friday, Friday evening. And um, it's been a shock to our family. And I know that many of you have been through something like this before, so you, you know the emotions and, and everything that gets stirred up in that. But um, I, I just wanted to remind you all again, and it's a reminder to myself, that salvation is not a one-time prayer. Being saved is not a prayer that you pray in church and, uh, and then you're going to go to heaven. That is not what Christianity is about. Salvation is an ongoing work in your life where you draw into a deeper and even more deeper relationship with God, communion with God. My brother drifted from the Lord for many years, but in the last year, thank, thankfully, he began to draw closer to God and the things of God became more important for him again. And I, w I was grateful to just two weeks ago to have spent some really quality time with him and actually to have also have spoken about the things of God. You do not know. You do not know. You can wake up in the morning and be gone by evening. And I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you. Take your walk with God, take your relationship with God, not lightly. Take it seriously. Think about who you are and how God sees you and how he's gifted you. And seek to be the difference maker that he would have you be in your world, in your workplace, in your place of learning, wherever you, in your home. Seek to be that kind of person that, that lives out what, what the kingdom of God is all about. Because that is what salvation is. Salvation is an invitation into the kingdom. It is an invitation into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus went to that cross, to, to make that way, to, to, to make a way for us to come into a restored relationship with the living God. So I really just want to exhort you. You just don't know. None of us know. Scripture teaches us and says that the, the number of days that we have have been ordained by God. God knows our number of days. At the same time, we live in a broken system, a, a fallen environment. And so we are susceptible to the things of this world. So my encouragement and my exhortation to you is, is, is to press in and to learn to know the living God. Thank you, though. I, I really do appreciate it. I've had so many phone calls and, and, and for people who... who um, have reached out. It's been a, a real, real strength and blessing. I just wanted to say thank you for that. Okay. Last week, I um, began a series uh, um, for Advent, and, and Advent is this time on the Christian calendar 
where Christians around the world prepare themselves for the coming of Jesus, right? The Messiah at Christmas. And um, what we are looking at over last week, this week, and next week are some of the ways at which Jesus is portrayed through the eyes of the gospel writers. We have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we have John. Um, and so we're just, I'm just taking some of their thoughts about how they portray Jesus, and I want us to just spend some time thinking about that and looking at that. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the one who fulfilled the promises of God, right? In the, as, as we looked at Matthew, we could see that Matthew was saying that everything that had been promised in the Old Testament uh, was fulfilled in Jesus. Those promises that the Father made were fulfilled through Jesus. And this week, what I want to do is I want to look at how Mark portrays Jesus as a different kind of Messiah. So let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I just thank you for our time together right now. Uh, settle our hearts Engage with us, I pray, God, and, and may the words that I speak today be words that encourage, uplift, reveal. Um, may they be anointed by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move amongst us right now for this message to just be honoring to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Mark, who, who, who knew... Who knows that it was the, the actual, it was the first gospel that got wrote, the book of Mark. Sometimes people think that Matthew is because it's the first book in the New Testament. But actually, Matthew wasn't the first gospel that was written. Mark was the first gospel that was written. It was written about 40 years after the time of Jesus. And if you go and look at this, no one is completely sure who actually wrote the gospel of Mark or who authored it. Um, but church tradition ascribes the book to a man whose name was Mark. And uh, the early church associated the Gospel of Mark with John Mark, who was a missionary colleague. Um, and you read about uh, his uh, work with Paul and, and, and with Barnabas. And according to a very early church father, a guy whose name was Papias, uh, Mark became a, a, an interpreter for Peter in, in, in Rome. Um, and so uh, this Gospel was written a very, very long time ago. and um, it's, a, it's, it's, in, it's an account of, of the life of Jesus. So it's an ancient document that we're going to be talking about this morning. And we are going to take some of this ancient document and see how this writer portrayed Jesus. And hopefully there's going to be some learning for us this morning. So if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, you'll know that uh, it's, a really, it's, a, it's an action-packed book. It, it has this abrupt beginning. And then the other thing about Mark is that it has a mysterious ending. I always love to talk to, talk to people who come and tell me that the scripture is without error. I always point them to the book of Mark and say, well, how come it's got two endings? So we've got to be careful about the words that we use when, when it comes to, to scripture. I believe the scripture is spirit inspired, okay, in case some of you are, <laughs> what's he on about? Okay. Um, but it, uh, it's, a, it's a straightforward account of the life of Jesus. It really is a fast-paced uh, text, uh, it's, it's action-filled narrative about this man from Nazareth whose name was Jesus. It's about his life and his teachings, his divine identity, uh, his human vulnerability. And with Mark, we see the kingdom of God breaking in through Jesus. And we also see the opposition that he faced with uh, his fellow Judeans and, and the Roman opposition. 
And it really is a wonderful book. I took time this week to read through the whole, the whole Gospel of Mark in one go. It's a story of prophecy and power and resistance and, and betrayal. But Mark is very careful to define for us what kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. And he also defines for us what a disciple of Jesus looks like. And that's what I want to look at today. What kind of Messiah was Jesus? And what kind of follower is Jesus looking for? And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, if you've got a hard copy like I have, or if you've got a, an app on your phone, we're going to be uh, spending some time uh, in Mark chapter 8. And I'm going to start here in verse 22 with an unusual story of the healing of the blind. So Mark tells us that uh, Jesus and his disciples came to a village uh, called Bethsaida, and uh, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and these people, according to Mark, begged Jesus to touch him. And so Jesus, Mark tells us, took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And then Jesus does something quite strange. He spits on the man's eyes, and he puts his hands on him, and then Jesus asks him a question. <laughs> Can I spit on anybody's eyes this morning? Let's just do an experiment. He says, do you see anything? <laughs> and the man looks up and says, you know, and I can imagine Jesus spitting on his eyes and then taking his thumbs and like, touching those eyes. And he says, he says do you see anything? And, and the man looks up and he says, well, I see, I see people, but they look like trees walk, walking around. I, 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 can't, I can't see clearly. And then Jesus again puts his hands on the man's eyes. And then Mark tells us that his eyes were opened and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus sends him home saying, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't, don't say a word. Don't even go into the village. Oftentimes we read that, we say, why did Jesus say all that? It's because the time was not right yet for what he had to achieve. Um, and I did a Good Friday sermon on that. Uh, you can go back on, on the archives and listen to it about the reason why Jesus came. So, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting story here of a blind man who had to be prayed by Jesus. He had, uh, he, Jesus had to pray for him twice to be healed. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, I'm going to go into, in a moment to the deeper meaning over here. But I, but I love the story because it's also a model for us to persist in prayer. It's a model for us to, to, um, to keep on praying. Jesus needed to pray for this guy more than once in order for his healing to take place. And I think partly, as Mark recounts this, Jesus is giving us a model not to give up praying. Just because somebody doesn't get completely healed when we pray for them, we should continue to pray. Because they might get healed, they might get touched by God, the circumstance might change the second time, third time, fourth time. We've got to keep praying. I've heard many testimonies of people who have prayed, uh, they've been prayed for, and then nothing has happened, or maybe something ha has happened in a little way, maybe a bit of improvement, but they've continued to get prayer, and at some point, God has healed them. And in fact, our volunteers, as we gathered here this morning, Denise said, hey, I've got a testimony, and uh, she's had some health issues, and she just gave thanks this morning for God's work in her life, and that, that, that the issues she's been dealing with have dissipated that God's worked a healing in her life and that has been through continued prayer and I'll tell you this morning I have personally experienced the same thing in my own life 
a few years ago, my health was all over the place. The people who worked with me knew that my, for some reason, um, my joints kept swelling up. I, I, my, my wrists would suddenly swell up, or my elbows, or my, my knees would swell up, or my ankles, and, and I'd have this incredible pain, and I kept thinking, have I got arthritis? What's going on? And, and I, I went off to all the doctors, and then I started getting these, these kind of pains in my chest, and, and I... I went and I thought, have I got heart problems? What is going on, right? And I went for all these scans and um, I had, they gave me injections. I took medicine. I, I, um, I had these cardiac tests. I had an angiogram. And through all of that time, I received prayer and there were people praying for me. Um, but I didn't have immediate healing. But I can tell you, like Denise, after a period of time, those issues, those health issues just dissipated. And I have not had any of that chest pain. I've had no swelling in my joints in the last four years. And so for me, it's just a, it's just, it's, it's a great thing that, that Jesus is doing. It's, it's an example that we should not give up, give up praying. So it's, it communicates to us the story to be persistent, persistent in prayer. You might be praying for someone's salvation. You might be praying for, somebody to, uh, for God to ring somebody's phone. You might be praying for someone's healing. There might be some blessing that you're seeking for from God. And I want to encourage you this morning, don't stop praying. Persist. Keep on praying. But there's a deeper meaning uh, here which um, goes beyond encouraging us to persist in prayer. And I can't, I, I can't even begin to understand what has happened. Um, my knee is it, 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 it's healed. I, um, Saturday I fell off my horse and when I landed, I knew I'd hurt my knee. I tried to walk it off. I got to the side of the arena and I sat on the floor and I just burst into tears. And as soon as I took my jods off, well, pulled my jods up, it was a balloon. The paramedic said I'd done something serious and that's why he needed me to go to the ER. I had this huge bandage on. I couldn't put weights on it. I was in so much pain. On Saturday night, I barely slept. Sunday was even worse. I'd woken up feeling worse on Sunday. And now I'm, I, I'm walking normally. I have zero pain. I just, <laughs> I can't even begin to understand I can't believe it. Um, I believe it because it's happened, but I, I just don't. Yeah, I just, this is testimony to how real God is in our life. And Jamie said to me in the car that I had torn my ligaments. That's what his prediction was. And I said, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. And I've been praying the blood of Jesus over this knee and asking him to stitch me back together because I have so much to look forward to this holiday. And I've got a year-end function coming up. So I did. I prayed that over me. And I'm healed. And I can't believe it. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ian. That, that again is just testimony. Testimony to the goodness of God. And to the fact that he is, he is, he is a real God. He, he loves us and he, he wants to be at work within our lives. Thanks. I want to talk though a little bit uh, about the, the deeper reason um, why we read this uh, about Jesus praying for this guy two, two times. This blind man, after Jesus prayed for him the first time, 
only partially sees. Okay, here's what we read in Mark 8.24. Let's just read that verse again. It says, he looked up and said, I see people and they look like trees walking around. And, and Mark is making a point over here that this man is, is like the disciples, right? These followers of Jesus, these disciples were not completely blind anymore. They could see Jesus. They were engaging with Jesus, but they did not yet fully grasp who he was. They didn't understand what kind of king he had come to be. They did not understand what it meant to truly follow him. In the, in the story immediately preceding this one in the book of Mark, you'll see that Jesus performs this miracle where 4,000 people uh, are fed. And the disciples are amazed. They're like, how on earth does this happen? This, is, this, is, this, this man, Jesus, is a miracle worker, right? So they, so they can partially see something about Jesus. But they don't yet grasp what kind of mess- messianic king Jesus came to be. They, they, they're not completely blind, but they were not seeing clearly yet. Now, I think sometimes that's true of our own lives, isn't it? Sometimes we can see, but we're only seeing partially. We don't see the full picture. Some of you this morning here are married, and maybe in your marriage relationship, you've potentially looked at your spouse on some occasion and said, yes, I know that they love me, but he is so frustrating. He does not understand how I feel or what I'm saying. I can see a few nodding heads, yeah? So, you know, or maybe she never listens. I've just got to keep explaining myself again and again, you know. I don't know if that's ever happened in your marriage relationship um, where you felt that way about someone who's really close to you. You know, but, but only in part, right? And that's the, the story of a marriage relationship. It's a journey. And, and sometimes, you know, people don't fully see each other, don't understand what motivates who they are or what they need. Now, immediately after the healing of this blind man at Bethsaida, we read uh, Peter, uh, who, what happens with Peter and Jesus. Straight after this incident, we see this, uh, this confession that Peter makes in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through to 30. It's a, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, he said, who, who are people saying that, uh, that I am? Who, who do people say I am? He wants to know, what, what, what are people saying? And so the disciples are, well, well you know, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Some, some people are saying you're, you're Elijah. And, and others are saying, you know, that, that they reckon you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Peter gives this answer. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And again, Mark tells us, Jesus tells them, hey, keep that quiet. Don't tell anybody about it. So Peter has a flash of insight, and he looks at Jesus and he goes, I know. I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're everything that my ancestors have hoped for. You're everything that thousands of Jews have been praying for, millions of prayers you know, to see. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. You're the one who's going to heal our broken world. And so Peter was saying, I was blind, but now I see. My eyes have been opened to who you are. But like the blind man at Bethsaida, Peter can only partially see. Let's read on in verse 31 through to 33. It says that uh, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. 
And after three days, rise again. And he spoke very plainly about this. And Peter then takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. <laughs> the same guy who's just looked at Jesus and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus begins to tell him about what he's going to go through. He's speaking prophetically. And Peter's like, no. Begins to rebuke Jesus. And then Mark tells us Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. You only have in mind human concerns. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, he's saying, Peter, you need a second touch. You need a second touch to grasp the kind of Messiah that I have come to be. You need a second touch to grasp what my mission in this world is all about. You're just like that man who could see, uh, but he could only see men as trees walking. Peter, everything's still pretty hazy for you. It's pretty foggy. Peter, you're not getting it. And folk, this morning, there's something that we, need to, we can really take a hold of. We, we could grab a hold of this Christmas. And that is that Jesus did not come to be a little baby that we swoon all over in a little manger somewhere with a nice little romantic story. Jesus came to be a different kind of Messiah. And you might ask the question, well, what, what, what didn't Peter understand? And I think it's the same misunderstanding that all of us struggle with. You see, to be a Messiah, to, to, to be a king, to be a leader in the culture in which we live is to be a winner, isn't it? You look around our world, it's to be a winner. It's not to be a loser. To be a king or a leader is to, to be served. Not to serve. What world leader do you see serving? No, no, you serve me. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. I, to, be, to be the important one, to be first, to be up front, you know, all the cameras on you, all the attention on you. And we're taught that that's what leadership is about. That's what we see in our world every day with our politicians, with, with leaders in different spheres. In fact, sometimes even in the church, we see the same thing. Being recognized as the most important, being acknowledged, being fawned over and applauded, you know, having the biggest crowds. Isn't that what our culture tells us leadership is? And Jesus is saying here, if that's what you think, you are still half blind. Let's look at verse 31 again. Jesus says, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And so if you've got your Bibles, maybe you need to underline that word that, that little word there, must, or highlight it on your app. Because it's key to understanding the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. This must, this word must, is key to understanding the mission of Jesus. There is a mustness to his suffering and his death. He was under divine compulsion. He had to suffer and die according to the will of God. There was no other way around it. There was no other possibility. Jesus said, he must die. And this is something that we read over and over again in many places in the New Testament. I'm going to look at two verses. First one here is Mark chapter 9, verse 12, where Jesus has just been up on the Mount, Mount Transfiguration with uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they're coming down, and they're talking about what's been written in the Old Testament, talking about the things that have been prophesied. And, uh, and Jesus replies to them. He says, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things because they'd asked him that question. And when Jesus talks about Elijah over here, he's talking about John the Baptist. But then Jesus says this, he says, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? 
Again, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be rejected. I have to suffer. There's going to be a suffering that needs to take place. And right before Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples here in Matthew, he said, do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think it's not within the realm of possibility that I could do that? But again, Jesus says, but then how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? How are the scriptures going to, how is what God said is going to, what's been prophesied going to happen? So Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the king. You understand that. You get that much about me, right? I am a leader, but I'm not like any king or any leader you have ever known. What Jesus is saying is, I'm a king who suffers. I'm a king who serves. And so, you know, I think we could ask ourselves a good Advent question today. Why was it that Jesus had to suffer and die? Why must the Messiah suffer and die? And I think one of the first things we should really come to grips with and understand is that so our sin could be paid for. Our sin. There was a rabbi who lived in the 18th century. His name was Rabbi Yitzhak Mir of Gur. Or Gur. You can Google it. G-U-R. Rabbi Yitzhak Mir. He said this in the 18th century. He said that sin essentially is stealing from God because God is our creator and maker. Let me say that again. Sin essentially is stealing from God because God is our creator and maker. And so what he's saying over there is that because God is our creator, because God is our maker, we owe God worship. We owe God our gratitude. We owe God honor. We owe God our obedience and our loyalty and our trust. But instead, so often, instead of what, Instead of giving God what we owe him, our worship and our thanks and our you know, honor and obedience, what we do is we rob God all the time. Instead of giving God credit, we so often steal the credit for ourselves. And that's the kind of world we live in. Don't we? we see that every day. People like, I did this. I created that. It's all about me. I'm, I, I built this business. I'm a self-made man, right? You know, I, I deserve the rec- recognition. I deserve the honor. Instead of giving God credit, we, we're looking for the credit to come our way. Instead of giving God thanks, what do we do so often in our lives? We complain. How often do we do that as Christians? God, why did you let this happen? God, why did you do this to me? God, why isn't my life better than it is? God, you owe me. Instead of giving God obedience, we give him disobedience. And so you see, when we enter into that and we begin to do those th- things, What this rabbi is saying is that you're stealing from God. Sin is stealing from God what we owe him. And if you steal, simple justice requires that you pay back in restitution what you stole. Yeah? Are you with me this morning? If you steal my car and you smash it up, it's no good to come and say, Oh, Andrew, my bad. Oops. No. Mate. You're going to have to pay for that. And you're lucky if I don't call the police and get you locked up. There's going to have to be some restitution over here. Right? You know, if you steal someone's wallet and take the money out of it, it's not good enough for you to come and say, hey, well, you shouldn't have left it on the table. No, it doesn't work that way. And so you've got to pay back what you owe. That's the definition of justice. And so when we steal from God the honor that we should be giving to him, when we steal from God the credit that we should be giving to him, when we steal from God the gratitude and the obedience, we owe God a debt. But our problem is that our debt is impossibly large. 
It's way too big for us to ever make right with God. There's no ways we'll be able to, to get that right. We've been, most of us have stolen from God our whole lives long. And we've run up a debt that is infinitely large. We'd never ever be able to pay it back. And so if we ask ourselves the question, why must the Messiah suffer and die? It's because we have an infinitely large sacrifice. We need an infinitely large sacrifice to pay back an infinitely large debt. A sacrifice has got to be made. And he made that sacrifice on our behalf. And the second thing I'd, I'd say on this question is why must, when it comes to the, suf the Messiah suffering and dying, is so that we can understand the enormity of our sin. You know, I don't know how your week's gone. I don't know how your week ahead is going to go. But when it comes to doing things in an unkingdom way, because <laughs> that's, that's what we've been invited into. We've been invited into the kingdom. And the kingdom is about living our life according to God's way. But so often we go, well, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And so we really do need to understand the enormity of our sin. And the Bible uses a lot of metaphors to try to communicate to us the truth that a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. A holy God cannot live peacefully with sin. And the Bible uses several metaphors to explain, explain this. One of them is distance. I've got a picture of distance here. We all understand distance, right? You understand this picture. You didn't know it three years ago, but now, man, it's so ingrained in your brain. You know what this is all about, right? And so the Bible uses this picture of distance between God and our sin. If you think of the Old Testament, when God, when, uh, God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Mo God said to Moses, this is sacred ground. This is holy ground. Don't come any closer. Take your sandals off. Don't come any closer. With the Israelites at Mount Sinai, God, when he, when he, he, said, he, said to, he said to Moses, listen, tell the people to stay away from the mountain. Put a limit, put a fence around the mountain because if, when I come down, if anybody touches this mountain, they're going to be instantly killed. He says to the Israelites, you go and read when, when they cross the Jordan River and they're carrying the ark and they're going into the promised land. What does God say? He says, keep a distance of a thousand cubits from the ark of the covenant. Don't go near the ark. 450 meters, stay away from the ark. Don't come where I am. See, the Bible uses these metaphors to communicate to us that God cannot dwell peacefully with sin. Here's another picture in the, in the scripture, a picture of fire, right? And this is from Hebrews chapter 10. The scripture tells us, the writer tells us that it's a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of, of, of the living God. And then probably the strongest picture of God's reaction to human sin that we find in Scripture is this picture. And it's not a very nice picture, right? But this is from Leviticus. Here's what we read. It says, God says to his people, don't defile yourselves in any of these ways, right? Don't go off and do these things that these pagan nations have been doing because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. It's an incredibly vivid picture. God cannot tolerate, God cannot digest our sin. Sin almost causes, causes like, a, a, like a violent reaction in God. God is a holy God. He cannot be at peace with sin cannot be at peace with sin in our own lives. And my third point here around why, why Jesus, 
the Messiah who came, why he had to suffer and die, is so that our pride can be destroyed. The, 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 the death of Jesus on the cross is an, an attack on human pride. And you might think to yourself, well, what do I mean by that? Well, so often we want to believe that we can earn our way to God. And sometimes we even know theoretically that you can't earn your way to God, but yet you live that out. In fact, all of the, all of the religions in our world, all of the human religions cater to human pride. There's something that I can do to win God's favor. There's something that I can do to get God to notice me. You know, and as, as Christians, we do the same thing. Look at me, God. Look how, how long I've fasted. Look how, God, how I'm crawling on my knees to you. Or, or look how, God, I, I went off and, you know, I did a pilgrimage to some place to, to go and spend time. Look at what I've done, God. God, did you see how much money I gave to the church this year? Or God, did you see how many times I pray a day these days? I pray five times a day. God, do you know just how long I took in my prayer this morning? God, do you know how many Bible verses I've memorized? And, and, and so we don't even realize sometimes that we, we, we've taken on this attitude of thinking that I can work my way to God. And it's because of our own pride. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die because it was only through that bloody death on the cross that our pride gets destroyed. That our own efforts at self-help, at self-salvation get destroyed. It's only at staring at the bloody death of Jesus on that cross, that we can come to a place of going, it's not about anything that I do. It's not about me bragging about how humble I am. It's not about my self-promotion. It's only when you get down on your knees and like that tax collector who came before Jesus and was beating his chest, and he said, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's only that when you come to God with empty hands that you're going to receive his grace and forgiveness. You cannot come to God with, with stuff filled up with what you do. You can't come with all of your things, your self-help, your self-salvation. If you're coming to God with all of the things you, you're doing, you're not going to find the grace that you need. The fourth point that I want to make here about why this Messiah is different and why he had to suffer and die is so that we can experience God's love. How, how, do you know, how do you know that God loves you when you don't feel it? How do you know? How do you know that God loves you when things in your life are falling, falling apart? You look around and you go, well, I don't see God. Where's God? Where's God in this situation? You don't get any answer to prayer. You know, you're not seeing the healing that you've been praying for. You're not seeing the breakthrough that you've been asking God for. You've been praying for the salvation of somebody, your husband, your wife, somebody, some family member, and you're not seeing anything happen. How do you know that God loves you when every sign in your life is pointing in the opposite direction? This is how you know. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. This is Romans 5 verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you look at the cross, we should never separate the death of Jesus from the love of the Father. It says that God was in Christ. The scripture teaches us he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, reconciling us to himself. And this is a painting here by an Italian artist. It's called the Trinity. And in this picture, what you see over here is the death of Jesus on that cross But in the painting behind Jesus is God the Father. God did not create another being to be our sacrifice. God himself was our sacrifice. 
The cross demonstrates the self-sacrifice of God. And so how do I know that God loves me? Because he died for me. He loves me that much. He died for me. But you see, in what Mark's pointing out to us here this morning is that the disciples could only half see. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't quite get what kind of Messiah he was going to be. And that's the whole thing that, that Mark brings, up, brings across in his gospel, that Jesus came to be a different kind of Messiah to what they were expecting. How do you see Jesus? As we approach this Christmas time, how do you see the work of God through him? How do you see his life? Let's go back to Mark for a little bit and talk a bit about discipleship. Here's what we read in verse 34 through to 37. Mark tells us that he called, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said this. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, uh, let's just go back there one, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul, Jesus says. You know, even Christians who have the Bible, Christians who've read the Gospel of Mark, Christians who've read the words of Jesus to his followers, even we as Christians, when we've got our own Bibles, we've got the Scriptures and we read these words, so often we remain like the man who was still half blind after receiving just one touch from Jesus. We, you can go online and you can watch sermon after sermon about how being a Christian is about being a winner. And I just want to say that if, if by being a winner, you're talking about being a winner in the ultimate sense, right? Having God in your life and not lying about yourself anymore, not lying about the world around you anymore. If being a winner is about telling the truth, then I, then I would say, yes, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a winner. If, 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 if being a winner is about serving a greater purpose than yourself then being a follower of jesus would i'd say yes you're you're a winner right if, if, if being a winner is about being freed up from all of the things that destroy life our addictions self-centeredness our rage our anger our envy our jealousy if being a winner is being freed up from all of the things which destroy life then yes follower of jesus you're a winner but what happens with a lot of Christians is that they think being a winner means that if you sign up with Jesus, you're going to get everything. And that's the message of the prosperity gospel and me the message of many churches around the world today. If you sign up and be a Christian and, you know, Jesus, he's going to be your magic genie, man. He's going to give you everything that you want. It, you, you name it and claim it. You'll get all the applause you ever wanted. You'll get all of the world's approval. You'll get all of the career success you want. You'll have all the money that you want. But Jesus is actually saying, hey, listen here. I came to bring about a different kind of discipleship, a different kind of Christianity, a different kind of followership. Jesus says in the second part of verse 34 over here, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
You see, Jesus is telling us that there's no Messiah without a cross. There's no discipleship without a cross. If you want Christianity without a cross, you're like the guy who could see them walking, but it looked like trees walking. You're still half blind. And we could ask ourselves, what, 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 what's this about? What's the cross that I'm supposed to pick up? And, and, I, and I would say to you, it's, it's not enough for you to look at the cross and go, oh, you know, that hymn, the, the wondrous cross, you know, and, and just admire it. No, no, you, we've got to embrace what Jesus did at that cross. And, and picking up, denying yourself and taking up your cross is not about the tribulations in your life or the problems in your life or the difficulties that you encounter in life. The cross is not your failing eyesight or your aching back. The cross is not your boss or your spouse or your disability. Because God can use all of the pain in your life. God can use all of the difficulties in your life. And that's not what Jesus is referring to when he says, pick up your cross. To be followers of Jesus means that you and me, we have to die along with him. There are things in our life that we have to die to. We have to die to our ego, our pride. We have to die to our demands. We have to die to our rights. It's my rights. We've got to die to that voice on the inside that screams all the time. It's what Andrew wants. It's what I want. It's my will be done. I've got to die to that. You've got to die to the same thing in your life. To deny yourself and to pick up your cross means to completely, totally surrender to God. When we, when we shake our fists at the sky and, and, and we get angry with God because of something that's happened in our life, something's come along our way, picking our cross up means that you say to God, I'm not going to get angry with you. You say, God, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. But you're God and I'm not. The cross, the cross means not my will, but your will be done. The will of the Almighty. Your cross, my cross, is not the terrible things that have happened to us. It's not our grief. It's not our losses. It's, it's, it's not our experience or our, our hurts. Our, our cross, your cross, my cross, what's, what's got to be put to death is our, is our angry demand that God's got to explain to us why this terrible thing happened. We've got to put that to death, and we've got to trust him with our whole heart, despite those things. And so here's what the Gospel of Mark is communicating to us about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. Jesus is not a magic genie. He's not a bless me dude that you go to when you've got a problem. He's an example to us of the kind of life that we need to live. And Jesus is calling you and I to be a different kind of disciple. You have your life. You are journeying through your life. Jesus said, go into the world, tell everyone about me, baptize them in my name. So if you've not been baptized, again, you've got to question this thing about discipleship in your life. You actually have to say to yourself, how seriously am I taking this? Because Mark's telling me something about this man. Mark was, was pretty close to those guys who lived with Jesus, who heard what Jesus said. He said, go into the world. Tell people this good news, the message about the kingdom. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and make disciples. And all too often, 
You know what we're doing, especially in the Western world in which we live, because we live in such a comfortable environment? We, 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 We don't see what God wants us to see. And we get caught up in a lot of the stuff that's around me and what I want and what's comfortable for me. And Jesus is saying, my example to you is a little bit different. Jesus is saying, you don't know how many years you have. And, and now's the time for you to get it right. But what you've got to do is you have to surrender completely to him. I've got to surrender completely to him. I'm not perfect. I've got to do the same as you. And I have to keep course correcting all the time in my life. I've got to keep course correcting and saying, God, help me see it your way. Help me do it your way. And the way of Jesus is a way of serving. It is a way of self-sacrifice. It is a way of laying your life down. It is a way of picking up your cross, dying to yourself and your own will, and saying, God, I put you first. I put your kingdom first. The church, by and large, has got hugely distracted in the West. Hugely distracted by the things of this world. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to encourage you this morning, as you come to this Christmas period, how's the renewing going? How's the renewing going? Are you going to walk out those doors again this morning and slip right back into the pattern? Oh, that was nice today. They sang really nice songs. Sounded really great. I don't know what Andrew was on about, but, you know, I might go back next week. Or are you going to walk out those doors and say, God, you've got to do some stuff in my life. There's some stuff that's got to change in my life. And I want to open up my heart to you and I want to surrender to you more deeply. And may this Christmas time be a reminder of why you came to this planet. Why you entered our condition. The message that you brought. What your kingdom's all about because you call me to live that out daily. We can have the nice God, but it's not the true God. I love you. May God bless you. Go in peace. Seek him first in all you do.